you, Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. Welcome back to Hanging with History. This is season one, That Miracle That Happened, That One Time. And today we're doing episode 20, The Agricultural Revolution, part three, the third of our three-episode arc on the Agricultural Revolution, Demeter's Revenge. And later on this episode, Dragon Slayer is going to be back, bringing her intelligence and fresh perspective. Last week, we looked at the good side of enclosure, the sunny side, the higher productivity rate. The land is producing way more than before and way more than on the continent. If you remember the number 80%, then great. I think you got it. And profits are hundreds of percent higher. Wealth is growing. We mentioned there was a tragic side. People displaced, moving away to colonies, and sometimes just starving to death. But we didn't say much about it. But there was this tragic side. There was a way of life. It went extinct. Change is hard. But that's a pathetic cliche, and I hate it. I don't think I ever said I hate something on the podcast before. Change is hard. That's a way to obscure the meaning, to appeal to a different, unemotional part of the mind, not a part that feels. It's such a trick that saying change is hard is effectively a lie. What did C.S. Lewis say? The greatest trick the devil pulled was making us forget he exists. If the devil exists... This Change is Hard is one of his cliches. The History on Fire podcast has a four-episode arc on Crazy Horse, but it's really about the Lakota trying to hold on to their way of life as the white man's world intrudes on it more and more. The railroads, the buffalo hunters with repeating rifles, gold prospectors in the Black Hills. So they fight a doomed, hopeless fight for the only kind of life they know. The alternative settling down on reservations to be cared for by federal bureaucrats who will forget to deliver blankets for winter, send them inedible food and unusable building materials, poisonous medicine, sucks hard. Imagine you told them change is hard. It just doesn't work, does it? And enclosure in many ways was like that. You grow up in a village. You probably move to another village just like it to work. When you grow up and get married, exogamous families, remember, and the practice of sending out. You wake up every day and maybe you work your plot. Maybe you go get firewood in the woods, go fishing some days, gather the goose or duck eggs, work on your house other days, repair tools, chat with your neighbors about what's growing well. Old Bill says he saw a deer yesterday. Oh, really? And Mrs. Johnson isn't feeling well. I'll bring her some dinner tonight. Will you do it tomorrow? Good. Alice is in a family way, and that Bob is lazy, but he'll need to work hard with a family to support. How are your little ones doing? Music at the social this Sunday? See you there? This isn't an easy life, no great riches, but I hope you can see that someone could love a life like that. Enclosure means this life is probably over. You don't need so many hands anymore, and you'll see it coming for years. The plans you had, the hopes for your children, dreams of growing old, surrounded by grandchildren, those dreams are trampled into the dust. But what can you do? Work for money whenever you don't need to work for your land? There's way too little work for all the hands in the countryside. That's okay. You're the biggest, the strongest back, the most willing worker. You will always be hired. Unless you are not the biggest and strongest, the hardest worker, what happens to you then? 
There is your land, but nowhere to fish now, nowhere to keep flocks of geese, and you have to pay for your firewood. You even have to pay for the thatch on your roof, and you probably aren't going to make it. And what if you're a mother of six and everything depends on how your husband responds to these kind of challenges? You have to move to a town, but you don't have a trade, so you stay miserably. Your children will move as soon as they're old enough for sending out. From your perspective, it's not so much that life has changed, it's more like life is over. I mean, this still happens today. Imagine you have a nice life in a small town with a furniture factory that's been there a hundred years. The factory closes due to foreign competition, or it stays open but mostly automates and everyone's unemployed. Life unravels. Sense of shared purpose is lost. Half the people are on welfare and taking meth. Does that happen? It happens in cities too. You live in a neighborhood all your life. You retire on social security, but the people change. Crime goes up. Your neighbor gets robbed in broad daylight. No one helps her. They knock her down. She breaks her hip. She lies in the street in agony over an hour before the ambulance arrives. She never comes back. The neighborhood where you spent your life starts to be like a prison because you're afraid to go out. And you're too old to move. Can't figure out how or where to go. Trapped. Does that happen? Or if you live in California, same story, but your neighborhood becomes too nice. The smartest people from all over the world are moving in. The rent goes up higher than you can afford. You're not sure what happened, but you lost your apartment. You're living in some faraway place where you don't know where anything is or who anyone is. Enclosures. Commons are lost. Rural life is over. I don't mean for all, but many. Not over entirely, but changed, even amid plenty, 80%, remember? There isn't enough work. There's hunger amid that plenty. What to do, and life doesn't have the savor it once had. Too little variety in food, much less variety in work, much less fun. The roof is leaking. You can't afford new thatch, not this year, unless the parish will pay. You need a miracle. Luckily, one is on the way. Will it be quick enough for you? Probably not. Let's be real. Quietly, you'll just die. Cold and hungry. That's really dark and depressing. Is all this misery part of the miracle? Couldn't we have done without it? No. Change always results in misery. That's just wrong. Life is so much better now. Even people on welfare have hot and cold running water, indoor toilets, TV, video games, books, and plenty to eat. And of course, beer. Beer is proof that God loves us. It is. Sure. I'm just in a mood, I guess. The tragic part of human life doesn't go away even after the miracle. We want things, or we want things to stay the same, but they change all the time, and someone always loses with every change. You sound like you really like to focus on the tragic. Sometimes. A sense for the tragic, how close it is, is a hallmark of a certain worldview in all its varied forms. I mean, ending serfdom required the Black Death, half of everyone wiped out. And even then, it was just a tiny corner of Europe. It was 450 years before Britain's example was enough to end serfdom in most of Europe. And even that required upheavals and gruesome events like the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. Even for the Dutch to break out of the limits on growth of medieval agriculture, their grain imports came from the work of Eastern European serfs. When people like Wycliffe and Martin Luther said, we don't need an institution like the papacy to have a church, 
the popes and kings got busy burning heretics. And they almost won, you know. They did win, though, didn't they? Lepanto in 1571, the Siege of Vienna in 1683, the Catholic kingdoms beat the Ottomans. What would have happened to your miracle if the Ottomans were victorious? It doesn't bear thinking about. The Muslim world stopped moving forward in terms of technological and social development years before those battles. That's why they lost, despite superior numbers. Social ossification as Sharia came to prevail over a more dynamic outlook that they had previously. None of it would have happened. No railways, no agricultural revolution. We'd all still be living in a Malthusian world, probably less than a billion of us, still suffering from famines and plagues. No good medicine either. There are almost 8 billion people alive now. 80% of them owe their very existence to the miracle that happened, that one time. But there doesn't seem to be any awareness of that. Certainly no gratitude. Certainly this is a weird circumstance. How is it that people don't know? The Catholic kingdoms contributed in a way, though. You're saying I've been too hard on the Catholic kingdoms? Very much. I didn't mean to be. Certainly not in the sense of anything we'd call Catholic today. But in the 16th century, when Philip was trying to invade England and subdue the United Provinces, well, they had the name Catholic, but that was just a name. It was really a medieval mindset where things were to be run for the benefit of the nobility and clergy, and everyone else was to be subordinate and contribute as much as they physically could. That mindset could never produce the miracle, and that's the filter the podcast has. So seen through that filter, the medieval mindset was bad even if it was better than what the Muslim world had on offer, or what the ancient world had going for it, or Mesoamerica or other great civilizations like India or China or Japan at the time. No, Spain was a threat to the miracle, even though we saw them off six episodes ago, and pretty soon we'll be in a death struggle with France once we get into the 1700s. This is a very consequential story. The notion that the world owes a debt of gratitude to Spain and Austria and Poland is true, but it's going to slow everything down if I have to keep bringing that up. China was the original source of a lot of important inventions that we think of as European, but often it's tricky to figure out what really came from China and what was reinvented again in Europe independently. I'm not going to stop and do that either. We often really do not know. The British-Dutch nexus is going to remain the focus of the miracle that happened that one time. And if that's not perfect history, if it isn't fair to everyone else, well, it can't be helped. At least, it would take someone better than me to do it. And I guess I could add one thing. We had the Vikings. What they added to English history in terms of individual rights and dignity and how they spurred the Anglo-Saxons to be better. We had the Normans ending slavery in England. We covered ancient times in the early episodes where the Jews made important advances in how people would treat each other compared to other ancient societies. How early Christians made that even better, embedded the power of love, weakened clannishness with exogamous families, and improved the lot of women. But we cannot ignore the role of rivalry. The Dutch struggle against Spain was vital to the eventual nature of a rich and tolerant Dutch society without which no group as wacky as the Pilgrims could ever have settled in America. Remember, they had their sojourn in Leiden first. The Portuguese rivalry against the Dutch, too, was a spur to greatness. The English had to overcome the Spanish, though in the Armada story it seems a lot more like God intervening in human affairs. But I left out a lot of stuff like England's counter-invasion of Spain. And the French become highly competent, partly from fighting the English so much, but then 
from their rivalry with Spain when Spain was number one country. That made France number one country. Britain had to spend a second hundred years war from the 1690s to 1815 to defeat France. By the end of that war, Britain was the world's first almost industrial power. We're going to talk a lot more about this in the future, but demand for more efficient war production was a huge spur to industry and enclosure. For now, I ask, could they have done it without the rivalry with France? Maybe. I certainly never used to think that the wars of the 18th century and the wars against Napoleon were necessary to the Industrial Revolution. But now I see there were many steps backwards into corruption in the 18th century in Britain. Corruption. Political. Financial. And almost all of history is a history of greatness lost. So maybe the pressures of war were vital. I'll try to tell the story and we'll see what you think at the end. But I came to this episode to learn about crop rotation. You said a couple episodes ago it was vital to the agricultural revolution and it was developed in Flanders and the Netherlands. Oh yeah, if this is going to be the last agricultural revolution episode, we'd better cover it. You know how organic life is basically a bunch of compounds of carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, and nitrogen? Hydrogen's the base element, and the enormous pressure at the heart of stars are what makes all the other elements. And then stars explode and blast carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen into the universe. What's that got to do with the agricultural revolution? Ha, it's all about nitrogen and monkeys. Okay, we are basically the result of the evolution of hydrogen, via the hearts of stars. Everything was hydrogen in the early universe after things cooled down enough for there to be ordinary matter. No one has any idea how that early universe got started or why it did what it did, but funnily enough, people still argue about that because that's what monkeys do. Argue about stuff they don't know anything about. There is the unmoved mover, God, or the Big Bang, and there was nothing before the Big Bang. Neither of those ideas are actually within the grasp of human mind, so let's argue about it. Actually, no, the Hubble telescope has recently provided data that suggests our current models of the early universe are wrong in some important respects. So it's a pretty exciting time, and we might know a lot more about the early universe soon. The science is never settled, apparently. Thank God. Stop bringing God into the podcast. Not God. Monkeys. And nitrogen. It's been speculated that if aliens ever come to Earth, you know, the same aliens that didn't move the herring shoals from the Baltic to the North Sea and sink the three Spanish armadas, they might come to Earth someday and study it from a distance and come to the conclusion that grasses are the dominant life form. They cover almost all the land that could possibly support grasses and that they have even domesticated a local species of intelligent ape to help them dominate the world. These grasses, rice, wheat, corn, maize, oats, and others, don't forget barley, need lots of nitrogen from the soil to grow. If you plant a grass crop like wheat, after a few years, the free nitrogen in the soil will be depleted and your wheat will grow very poorly. Time will bring nitrogen levels back up as chemistry does its magic to liberate free nitrogen from more complex compounds. But this takes years. Nowadays, this isn't a problem. We make synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, apply a little to the soil, and all is well. Natural fertilizers like guano, bone meal, blood, urine all work too. But for scale, we use synthetic nitrogen. Though we still have people who worry about micronutrient depletion and other problems of monocultures. But I don't really understand their issues enough to say anything. 
just a nagging suspicion that they're underestimating long-run elasticities and that technology will solve those problems too. But back in the day, nitrogen depletion was a big problem. Primitive peoples would grow their grains a few years, and when they noticed the yields falling too much, they would burn down some forest somewhere and start over on new land. Slash and burn, baby. In the ancient world, the ancient world is progress from primitive. Maybe they would grow grain one year and let the ground rest, planting nothing. They call that letting a field fallow, then planting grain again the second year. Obviously, this was a problem. The land is only getting used 50%. Rice lets you get around this somewhat for organic chemistry reasons that don't matter to the podcast, because rice doesn't matter to Northwest Europe. Then people noticed you could plant other crops during the fallow year that would not deplete the soil. Beans were a big one. Beans crop up in old religions with connotations of rebirth and reincarnation that's suitable to restoring life to fields upon which life depends. But beans take more work and produce less than grains. By the Middle Ages, the three-field system dominated. You plant wheat or another grain one year, then beans, peas, or lentils the next, and leave it fallow the third. If you have three fields, you do each at once and rotate through three years. The fallow isn't totally wasted since weeds would grow, and animals could be pastured there. Their droppings in the plowed-up pasture would fertilize the soil. This was a workable improvement over the two-field system, but you could still do a lot better. If three crops in rotation are so good, why not add another? They eventually figured wheat, turnips, barley, clover. Wheat, turnips, barley, clover. No fallow. Soil working all the time. Bread, beer, and animal food. This was all written down and popularized by Charles Townsend in the 1730s, known as the Norfolk Four-Course System, though it was the Dutch who really invented it. Weirdly, that Charles Townsend is the same Charles Townsend that ran the government with Robert Walpole in the 1720s, following a peace policy that would not last. He was also uncle to the Charles Townsend that the Townsend Acts are named after. That's that series of five laws or acts of parliament that levy taxes on many products, including glass, paper, and tea that were massively unpopular in America. Do you take milk with your tea? Ooh, you're going to dress up as Indians and dump it in the harbor. Salt, water, tea. No taxation without representation, you know. Anyway, the domesticated intelligent apes figured out how to beat the nitrogen problem, and there was much rejoicing among the grasses. Actually, the aliens would have an appendix in their report on Earth. It would be that the nightshade family of potatoes, tomatoes, and peppers would be rivals to the grasses. But since it was the grasses that sent the apes to the new world in the first place, it must all be part of the grass plan. It's funny to think of potatoes and tomatoes as just recent parts of European cuisine, not ancient at all. And hot peppers, only recently part of Asian cuisine, not ancient at all. One more thing to forget to thank the Catholic kingdoms for. And we'll see you next week on Hanging with History after Conversations with Cami. Okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> Try again. Yeah, Cami, you've heard episode 20 with Dragon Slayer. And uh, this episode was a little bit different, but I'm really curious what you picked up on. Well, I'm starting to wonder where this attitude came from. Change is hard. Almost all of history is about greatness lost. Change 
always results in misery. What, did you pick up on my bad mood when I came home from work this week? What, what's going on? <laughs> I don't know if there's a COVID-related element in you know, this weird lockdown we're in in California. I really felt it was important to include the tragic element, that there had to be an answer given to it, that it's an important part of the human experience. This notion, this sort of small-c conservative idea, uh, sense of the tragic, isn't included then the podcast isn't really honest. And if it's not syncretized, if I am allowed to use that word, or, or at least answered, then the argument's bad. So I, I wanted to put it in. Well, I can understand wanting to make the point that change is difficult. But using the words always, change always results in misery, surprises me. Well, it's, it, you could say it's just an expression of a mood, but it's more than that because when it comes to big economic and social changes, it's, it's not everyone that's made better off, at least, especially in the short term. And uh, the short term is where we live a lot of our lives. Historically, that's true. Most of our lives are just a little bleep on the whole, whole time frame of things. For a, a small example, it was like when I lost that weight recently, that's just easier on my knees and many good things. That's not a change that brings misery. But changing the rural landscape and the way that people are used to live, that kind of change, I think that always brings some misery with it. Yeah, that was hard. I agree. Well, the podcast is generally optimistic, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that's not all there is in life. That's not all there is to life. The people's livelihoods had to change. I mean, we still see that here even now in, in our current societies. Factories close, changes come. Freeways go in and bypass small towns. Town dies. Yeah. Things, things still happen in that respect. Still happens. So. So you commented on the content. Did you notice anything about like the tone of voice? Did it sound different to you? Well, just the attitude, I guess. Attitude. See, yeah. Or I wonder if it helped the attitude come in. The less positive. Come out. Um, I tried uh, something a little different, which was making the pauses about a full second instead of uh, usually I cut them in sound editing to a half second. And I was just wondering if that's something people are going to notice. I, I don't about. know. I have to admit, I was a little distracted as I listened because we had the dog running around and you were throwing its ball and. Yeah, we're babysitting a dog. And so I was listening, but I didn't notice those minor, or maybe not so minor. I didn't notice those nuances. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, maybe nobody else will. Well, now they'll go back and listen. It was just an idea, an experiment. Any other comments on the the podcast? No. Well, it was great to hear Dragon Slayer. She kind of kept you back on track, got you back into the crop rotation was the word I kept waiting for you to hear is use the word crop rotation. It took you a while. But uh, she brought you back on board on the agricultural revolution and kind of out of some of that strange changes bad funk. <laughs> for lack of a better word. Yeah. Oh, the uh, potatoes and tomatoes not being ancient. That's a good reminder. I mean, we grew up with both of our parents always had tomatoes in the yard and Hey, and Norway, that kind of thing, and potatoes, when I was a kid, Norway. It was potatoes was every meal. Yeah, there was always bread or potatoes at our meals, sometimes both. But uh, the reminder that potatoes and tomatoes are not from the ancient world was a good reminder. We, we forget sometimes how limited their, and their choices may have been. 
Yeah, very much. Um, all, all that uh, sailing around, discovering the new world, that definitely made our cuisine a lot better. You talked about the Vikings spurred the Anglo-Saxons to be better. Unless I tease you about that. Like, what do you mean always worse? The Vikings spurred, the, you even said, the Vikings spurred the Anglo-Saxons to be better. The Jewish and Christian beliefs that bettered the family. Those were changes. Those were good, right? It would come with a cost. With Obviously, a cost. the agricultural the agricultural little, little the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution were good things. Eventually, yeah, we wouldn't have movements. It's just that changes. It's just some things are lost on, along the way. Yeah, skateboarders. The sameness. More the small shops close, and the. Um, larger chains that are able to survive this economic crisis that we're seeing around the world. It could be. I'm looking forward to finding out. Me too. Thanks for coming on the program. You're welcome. Might need to redo some of that. And thanks, Dragon Slayer. Thanks for being on the program. I really appreciate it. And thanks for the lovely review on iTunes. I really appreciate it.